Would you return with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning? We'll be looking at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32. Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Father, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to profit from this. Help us, Father, to enter in, in some small way, the suffering of our Savior and the grace poured out even as he hung there on the cross. We ask this in the name of the suffering servant, and the risen, glorified Lord. Amen. It has long been observed that there is an astonishing restraint in the descriptions that we have in the Gospels of the crucifixion. The narratives that we find in the Gospels do not go into great detail concerning the suffering of the Savior. As harrowing as death by crucifixion was, there is almost no effort to describe what Jesus must have endured. Instead, we have simply, they crucified him. Nothing of the searing pain of the nails, of the hanging of the body from those nails. 
of the terrible pain of the muscles contracting, hanging there hour after hour, unable to change position. Nothing of the agony of having to push himself up on the nail through his feet in order to get a breath. Nothing of the terrible thirst, nothing of the humiliation of hanging there naked in front of a crowd of mockers. As Calvin wrote long ago, these matters call for secret meditation rather than for the ornament of words. On the other hand, there can be no doubt as we approach this portion of Luke's gospel that we have reached the very center of biblical revelation. Everything before it looked forward to this moment and everything after it looks back upon it. The gospel narrative is a story of the pilgrimage of Jesus to the cross. We learn at the very outset of the story of his life. The cross was the fulfillment of the elaborate system of sacrificial worship that had dominated Israel's religious life for 2,000 years. So much so that in the providence of God, once the crucifixion had occurred, there was no longer any reason for the animal sacrifices. The entire system of animal sacrifice was brought to a Screeching halt with the destruction of the temple a generation after the crucifixion. It is fascinating to consider, isn't it, that as fundamental to Judaism as animal sacrifices had always been and still were in the first century, it has not featured at all in Judaism ever since. All other biblical doctrines converge here at the cross. From the nature of God as both just and loving, to man's sin and guilt, to death as the punishment for sin, to the nature of that atonement as sufficient to reconcile sinners to God, it all comes here. The cross is the watershed of humanity. And the account of the two thieves that we find in this passage is a supreme illustration of that fundamental fact. We all know what a watershed is. It's a region usually of heavy snows where rivers originate and where water is divided to drain in one direction or another. What we call the continental divide is the watershed of the entire continent of North America. The snows at the top of that divide melt and the water flows down on one side or the other, eventually reaching the Atlantic or the Pacific. And because of this, the term watershed has come to mean any crucial dividing line. That is anything that makes a great and crucial separation. The cross is a watershed. The cross is the dividing line which makes a separation, both in history and in humanity. 
Everything prior to the cross leads to the cross. Everything after the cross flows from the cross. Whether from the human point of view, by happenstance or design, it was surely the will of God that saw to it that the lives of these three men would converge on that hill called Calvary. With these two thieves crucified and dying on either side of the Savior, all humanity was divided into one or the other of two great streams moving inexorably toward heaven or toward hell. One of these men mocks, the other believes. One goes to paradise, the other goes to hell. There is so much truth compressed in this brief narrative of these two men, so much that Luke wants us to see and so much that he wants to make clear to us. Here we see the sinfulness of man. These men were thieves. They had made their living taking advantage of others. They were mockers. There was in their heart a spirit of spite and anger and selfish disdain and pride. In other words, these two thieves were every man and every woman. They are the Jewish leaders. They are the Roman soldiers. They are the unfaithful disciples. And they are you and they are me. Here we see the compassion of God a readiness to forgive, a willingness to save, even to go to terrible lengths to accomplish the redemption of his people. Even on the cross, we have God incarnate praying for others who so cruelly and unjustly were putting him to death. He came into the world to suffer this death. From his very first breath, from prior to his first breath, He was on a course for this purpose, to save his people from their sin. Here we see the reality of eternal life in that word paradise. Can you think of a more important thing to know than that it is possible for human beings to go to paradise when they die? Not that it is inevitable but that it is possible. Here we see the power of faith to obtain that eternal life. You see it in the Lord's reply to the thief, and especially in that word, today. Here is one of the most powerful and timeless pictures of faith in Jesus Christ that we have anywhere in the word of God. One man believed, the other did not. Therein lay the difference between them. And therein, the difference between their destinies. Here we see the reality of conversion. The reality of the fundamental transformation of human life by the power of God. Here is the same great transformation that we are taught to expect in everyone whose heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. As we saw last week from John chapter 3, this is what Jesus calls the new birth. We're seeing it happen right before us on the pages of scripture in the life of this thief. 
who is transformed even as he hangs there on the cross. He begins just like the other thief, including the mockery. But by the end of the account, he is a new person, a new creation. Here, in this passage, we see the reality of divine grace, of salvation as a gift of God to the unworthy. This thief is rapidly approaching the end of his life. He had lived it horribly. He was a hard and cruel man. We know that because even as he himself is being crucified, even as after the nails had been hammered through his wrists and feet, even after the cross had been raised up in the air and violently dropped down, into the hole that had been prepared for it, sending pain through every nerve in his body, even as his weight settled down upon those nails in his hands and feet, even after he had to push himself up in order to take a breath, even as he's experiencing the same physical torture that Jesus was experiencing, he reveals the hardness and the darkness of his heart as in the midst of his own pain. He used whatever strength he had left in his body to mock and deride an innocent man. There he was, in his own private agony. As he hung there dying, at the very end of his earthly existence, And he could still find time and breath to make life more miserable for someone else. And then here, at the very end, with no possible explanation, other than the amazing grace of God, all the evil of his life is swept away and he would find himself among the righteous in paradise. This man who had probably never found himself among the righteous in this life. Salvation for him had to be a free gift, and it was. We tend to domesticate grace, but the reality is that it is amazing indeed. But it is also hard. It's hard because it not only changes the hearts of evil and cruel men, but when it works such a dramatic transformation, it shows us our own hearts as well. Think for a moment of the most evil men ever to walk the face of the earth. Let's just set up this hypothetical as clearly as we can. We'll take Adolf Hitler. As the example. Now, in reality, every shred of evidence that we possess tells us that Hitler died in his sin and passed immediately from his bunker into the pains of eternal torment. But let's set up a different hypothetical. What if Hitler's story ended differently? And just before his heart stopped beating, the Spirit of God changed it and brought the gospel to his remembrance, and he believed and was saved. 
Would you shake your fist in rage and declare God's mercy to be unjust? Or would you rejoice in a grace so amazing that it could even save a Hitler? How do you think the victims of this thief would have responded to the news of his conversion? Do you think this man's victims would have been happy to learn that he went straight from his punishment to paradise? Would they have rejoiced to know that after he had inflicted pain and suffering upon them, he was going to be happy forever? That would take a supernatural work. That would take amazing grace. What we need to understand is that this is the nature of salvation for everyone, ourselves included. It's not only being responsible for the death of millions which deserves death. It's not only blaspheming the Son of God which deserves death. The wages of sin is death. Not particular sins, not a given level of sin, just sin. Your sin and my sin. And the only way that sin can be forgiven is by grace. The same grace that forgives the sin of what you may consider to be the most wicked sinner is necessary to forgive your sin as well. No sinner has ever been saved any other way. Your life is a life of sin. And like the thief... Your lifetime of sins against God and man can only be swept away by the grace of God. Because it is only the grace of God which can change the heart and make someone a new creature. Here, we see the reality of unchangeable unbelief apart from that amazing grace. You see this in the thief who remained impenitent. The same hypocrite he had always been before. He saw the same things that the other thief saw. But he did not find paradise that day. Here we see above all else Jesus Christ himself. The savior of the world. The person who alone can bring us to God and to paradise. Is there a more remarkable thing than this thief turning to Jesus and asking for help and Jesus promising the thief everlasting life that very day? That day, as soon as that thief took his last breath, he found himself in paradise. No waiting room, no purgatory. The cross to paradise, that is grace. No one else can do that but Jesus. No one else did that but Jesus. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Only one, and that one brought that thief to paradise that day.
These are the truths which separate human beings into one of two groups. Those who embrace the cross as the salvation of the world and those who do not. Of course, those who do not embrace the cross are not necessarily always overtly hostile to the cross. There were those there on this day who merely witnessed the crucifixion and then continued on their way. While there were others who stayed, expended the time and the energy it took to actively mock And yet, whether it be one who is outwardly indifferent or one who is overtly hostile, neither saw the cross of Jesus for what it was, their only hope for paradise. The thief saw it that way. And there's only one explanation. Something from outside of him was at work. That which Christians know to be the central event of human history was so insignificant to the world of that day that the Roman historian Tacitus, in his review of the enduring strife in Judea, wrote this. Under Tiberius, nothing much happened. Nothing much except the cruel and unjust murder of the creator of heaven and earth. Nothing much except the salvation of the world. Nothing much besides the opening of the way to eternal life. That is the vast chasm which separates the two groups of human beings that reside in this world. However close they may be, however they may jostle with one another in their daily lives, they move inexorably in different directions. The one group heading to paradise and the other to hell. At the summit stands the cross and all mankind falls away to one side or the other. But the cross always stands at the center. It is the watershed. It is the dividing line. And as it was then, it remains today. While some find life in paradise at the cross, others don't give it a second thought. Still others have contempt for it. It has always been that way. Today it remains as it was on that day when the thief was promised paradise. And the difference between those two thieves is still the difference between men and women today. One mocked, the other believed. One found eternal life, the other had it within reach, but would not grasp it. These two men began as virtually the same man They were both thieves, they had both lived lives of crime, both had been caught, both were being punished, both would soon be dead. But at the very last, one grasped the truth that Jesus Christ held the key to the door of eternal life. And the other remained blind to that truth. 
And so while still hanging on their respective crosses, they began to move. They moved apart from one another, even while they were unable to physically move, until they were separated by a chasm that no man can cross. Seventeenth-century Scotland. There was a godly noblewoman named Lady Jane Campbell. She was noted for her character, for her intellect, for her spiritual gifts, and for her devotion to the cause of the Reformation. She came from a very distinguished and noble family, her father being an earl. And as a result of her station, but more as a result of her godly character, she became a correspondent with one of the greatest figures of the Scottish Reformation of that day, Samuel Rutherford. But Lady Jane was a woman with crosses to bear. She was quite sickly most of the time. She gave birth to three children, all of whom died two little girls in infancy, and a son who only lived a bit longer than that. But in addition to these trials, she also had her husband. She was married to a man named John Gordon, the Viscount of Kenmure. Now, if you don't, if if all you know about English and Scottish royalty is Harry and Meghan, Viscounts stand between earls and barons. They're kind of the middle management of royalty. Lady Campbell's husband, John Gordon, had gotten his title and all that came with it, the way most people did in the 17th century, by fawning over the king. In this case, Charles Stuart, otherwise known as Charles I who would eventually have his head removed by Parliament. Here's how Alexander White described Lady Jane's husband. Quote, it is not that he was a man of no mind. He was a man of no worth or interest of any kind. He was a rake. We should bring that word back, don't you think? He was a rake. The very last man in Scotland for Jane Campbell to throw herself away upon. And she was too clever and too good a woman not to make a speedy and heartbreaking discovery of the fatal mistake she had committed. Poor Jane Campbell soon wakened up to the discovery that she had exchanged the name and the family of a brave and noble house for the name and house of a coward. No wonder that Rutherford's letters to her are so often headed to Lady Kenmure under illness and depression of mind. Could you have kept quiet? Could could you have kept quite well had you been a Campbell with John Gordon for a husband? Think of having to nurse your humbug of a husband through a shammed illness. Think of having to take a hand in sending in a shammed doctor's certificate because your husband was too much of a time server to go to Edinburgh to give his vote for a persecuted church. Think of having to wear the title and decoration your husband had purchased for you from the villainous King Charles I at the cost of his truth and honor and manhood. 
Gordon was, all of his life, a profane, empty, useless, cowardly man. By every description and every report. He was happy to sell his soul for worldly advancement, while his wife, all the while, was just the opposite, a principled, godly, bright, thoughtful woman who, because of her husband, could only be and do part of what she so desired to be and do for Christ. In late August, early September 1634, her no-good husband lay on his deathbed, just 35 years of age, which happens when you live the kind of life he lived. And there, at the very end of his useless life, he found Christ and salvation and the door to paradise. Conversations he then had with his wife and with Samuel Rutherford and others were written down and later published by Rutherford under the title, The Last Heavenly Speeches and Glorious Departure of John Viscount Kenmuir. This evil, worthless man was found. He forsook his sin and by the amazing grace of God, he entered into paradise. Now, when God was doing this great work, Rutherford would come to see him and would not heal his wounds lightly. After Gordon had confessed many but not all of his sins, Rutherford would exhort him, dig deeper. (laughs) As if to say, we all know there's more. And he did thoroughly and humbly looking to Christ and finding forgiveness there at the twelfth hour. And the change in him was as great as it could have been in a man confined to his bed and suffering his final illness, particularly in the day before pain medication. If you read Rutherford's account of those conversations, you meet a man who, like the thief on the cross, gained heaven just as he was departing this world. And we may be tempted to think, but what of the years of Lady Jane's misery married to that terrible man? What of the damage he had done, not only to Jane, but to his fellow countrymen as well, forsaking the responsibilities and duties of his position? But Jane would have been the first godly woman that she was, forgiven sinner that she knew herself to be. She would have been the first to say that there was no difference between her and her husband. She would have said that the grace of God was necessary for them both. And that the grace of God, as amazing as it is, had come to both of them in the same way. The only difference was that in her husband's case, it was more obvious. And for that reason, more wonderful. Paul speaks truly when he quotes the psalmist. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. 
There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. If we are bound for paradise, it is only because of a divine grace so great that our entire lives of sin and moral failure are swept away in a moment. Because we have been made to see that Jesus Christ on the cross was there for us. Our blindness has been taken away and we've been given eyes to see. Our deafness has been taken away and we've been given ears to hear. Our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. And we don't do that ourselves. Only God does that. And he has to do that first. And that is grace. For any of you who are not yet sure that paradise is yours, look again at the thief who by faith in Christ on the cross stepped directly from the instrument of his execution to the presence of God. Call upon the Lord as he did. Call upon him while he may be found. If that thief had tarried, if he had waited just a few hours longer, it would have been too late. And we have no way of knowing when it will be too late. The cross is the dividing line. Two roads diverge, and they diverge at the cross. Which direction will you go? You can follow the road which is Christ. The road, the destination of which is paradise. Or you can go the other way. The destination of which is hell, torment, condemnation. Which direction will you go when you walk by the cross? Because that's what you're doing now. The cross is here. The cross is being held up before you. And you've got to go on one side or the other. You've got a decision to make. And like those who came by the cross and behaved indifferently toward it. Not making a decision is making a decision. I hope that you will go the way of Christ. I hope that you will go the way of John Gordon as he lay upon his bed with death approaching Rutherford asked him have you a present sense of the love of God to which he replied I have I have I pray that you can say the same Father, make it so. No one in this room, no one around the world, no one in history has ever been saved apart from your sovereign grace. And no one here, Father, who needs to be saved will be saved apart from your sovereign grace. Father, give them new hearts. Call them. May they see the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. May they see 
the heinousness of their own sin. And may they, Father, fall at the foot of the cross. We thank you for the promise. We thank you, Father, that for those who are in Christ, paradise awaits. Where we will see one another again, which is a tremendous blessing, but not nearly as great as seeing our Savior. For all of this, Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. Amen.